It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, impeachment week is dominating the media even more than I thought it would. I thought it'd be 23 out of 24 hours a day. I don't even think there's an extra hour in there, to be perfectly honest. And of course, it's happening. It's Donald Trump. It's impeachment, second impeachment to be precise. Uh, the media's Trump addiction hasn't been fed in several weeks, especially because he's not on Twitter. I'm going to have a lot to say about this trial. But before we get to that, first I want to take a moment to thank all of you who are listening or who have subscribed. In January, I just got the numbers, we had our best month ever in the uh, glorious history of this podcast, you know, more than a quarter million downloads. I think it was, you know, roughly double what it had been in previous months. Now is obviously a huge news month when you look at the post-election battle, January 6th, uh, the Biden inauguration and all that. But nevertheless, I feel like uh, uh, hopefully we're building a bit of a community here. So, you know, tell all your friends, as I like to say when they, people ask me how my show is doing, you know, tell them to tune in. We, are, we can use the ratings. A couple items to get to just so we can have a little bit of a uh, uh, fun before we uh, get to the actual impeachment situation. Uh, this is bizarre. Dallas Mavericks basketball team uh, has stopped playing the national anthem before home games at the American Airlines Center. What makes it kind of more newsworthy, I guess this has been going on uh, for a while, is that the owner, Mark Cuban, who I know, you know, big entrepreneur, big tech guy, um, was uh, on I interviewed him, and he was on Fox a lot during the 2016 campaign, flirting with running for president. Um, he's confirmed that he has said no national anthem, which obviously a lot of people are going to take as an absolute slap in the face. I mean, it's, there's no constitutional requirement uh, that a sporting event begin with the national anthem, but it certainly has become a very embedded American tradition, regardless of sport. Um, and Cuban in the past has been supportive of the players who have been taking a knee uh, uh, to protest racial injustice during the national anthem. Uh, here he tweeted uh, uh, back in the summer, last summer that would be, uh, the national anthem police in this country are out of control. If you want to complain, complain to your boss and ask why they don't play the national anthem every day before you start work. So he was critical. He was He supported... The people who took a knee, but at the same time, he thinks there should be more national anthem, and now he's decided there should be no national anthem. Um, interesting. I mean, he's going to take a lot of heat from that, and uh, I don't think that plays very well in the heart of Texas. Speaking of sports, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about how many people watched the Super Bowl on Sunday, Super Bowl 55. Um, and I had an aggregate figure for not just television, but, you know, online, digital streaming, whatever. Um, and that was a higher number than it turned out just on TV. So it turns out if you just look at the traditional over-the-air broadcasting, uh, the viewership figures for uh, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus Kansas City on Sunday were the lowest for any game since 2006. That's a decade and a half. And in one metric, the lowest since 1969. By the way, 1969 was a great Super Bowl. Super Bowl three. Joe Namath and the New York Jets upsetting the Baltimore Colts. And for those of you who don't even remember, there used to be um, the NFC and the AFC. And the AFC was the old American Football League. And this was the first time an AFC uh, team had beaten the heavily favored NFC team. So that was huge. It wasn't the world's highest scoring game. It was 16-7, to 7, as I recall. In any event, 
When you look at how many people actually watched on TV, 92 million people, according to Nielsen. So that's a little less than a 10% decrease from the 101 million people who watched last year's Super Bowl. That's significant, 10% drop. Remember, it's also been a COVID season. A lot of games got screwed up. I think there just may be less interest. And I think to the extent that it's an average of the whole game, the fact that it was a 31-9 to blowout for Tampa Bay, I think a lot of people may have tuned it out uh, in the second half. If it had been a, a barn burner, as they say, and maybe that, those numbers would have been harder. Meanwhile, have you followed this story about the Zoom call and the cat? So there's a, speaking of Texas, attorney down there named Ron Rod Putton, and he had a Zoom court appearance in uh, some judicial district down there yesterday. But when his, you know how he shows you the boxes of all the different faces, when the screen came up, instead of his face, there was a cat, and this video has gone absolutely crazy viral over this because there was an exchange with the judge, and the judge says, "Mr. Putton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings." And Potton is kind of baffled, and he says, I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to remove it. And it was a kind of like a funny, almost cartoonish cat that was staring downward. And Potton then says, uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. I'm here live. I'm not a cat. And there were a lot of cat jokes uh, during the impeachment trial, and then way the cat image is famous, and I guess so is this Texas lawyer. Uh, and one last little item. You know, this is obviously long, long overdue, but the... Aunt Jemima, uh, which is part of the, the, the syrup company, is, is part of uh, PepsiCo. It's finally dropping the name because obviously it's a racist image and all of that. Should have been done a long time ago. But the new name is awful. It's terrible. It's the Pearl Milling Company. Why would you want to see Pearl Milling Company when you reach for uh, a bottle of maple syrup? I mean, I get not seeing the image of Aunt Jemima. Couldn't they come up with something slightly more catchy? Jeez. All right. Now let's get down to it uh, and the impeachment uh, trial. So yesterday was day one. And even though it was, you know, you know what the headline is, which is that by a vote of 56 to 44, uh, pretty much as expected, the Senate voted to, that the trial is constitutional and to proceed Opening arguments are today, but really opening arguments were yesterday because everybody wanted to make the strongest possible case that they could on day one. Um, and so you look at how after all of the uh, two hours on each side, one vote was changed. Uh, when they did the test vote um, some time ago, 45 of the Republican, 50 Republican senators voted to toss out this trial. Unconstitutional should even have a trial. And yesterday, 44 of the 50 Republican senators voted that way. Uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana changed his vote. Uh, but still, you know, it doesn't change the bottom line. If 44, even if they lose a couple more, it's not even close to the 17 defectors the GOP would need or the Democrats would need to get from the Republican side to convict Donald Trump. So in that sense, um, nothing has changed. But it was a pretty dramatic day. And the reason it was a pretty dramatic day is the following. Everybody knew this was coming. The House Democrats who were managing uh, the case in the Senate had totally telegraphed this. Everybody knew that they would use video to try to make an emotional impact. And as somebody who has seen these videos again and again, and every time a new one came out, I would watch it. And so as somebody who watched it, you know, for eight straight hours on January 6th, that awful, horrible day, 
when our democracy was under attack, when the citadel of our democracy was under attack, when five people died, I still found it really chilling. And they, uh, the House Dems had hired a law firm to put this together. It was almost like documentary style. So it went back and forth. So first you see, you know, Donald Trump addressing the rally and we have to fight like hell or we don't have a country anymore. And we're going to march down Pennsylvania and I'll be there with you. Obviously, he was talked out of that. Um, and then they go from fight like hell and march down Pennsylvania Avenue in the words of the then president to this huge mob approaching the Capitol, and then you see, many of these images are familiar, you know, the smashing of the windows, the ramming of the door until the hundreds and hundreds of these rioters, these thugs, these criminals broke in. And then they would go back and forth, and they would say, well, here's Trump tweeting, and here's what he said, and they would go back uh, to more of the violence and the rampaging and the ransacking of our nation's capital. And so the, the cross-cutting back and forth, I thought, was highly effective because when they were showing President Trump at the rally, which was about an hour or a couple hours before um, the House and Senate were to convene to, remember, this was all about accepting the Electoral College certification of Joe Biden as the president-elect. You saw Donald Trump saying, I hope Mike has the courage to do what's right. And he was talking about Mike Pence. And then later it cuts to, you know, them setting up a guillotine and certain people are, you know, are, are shouting, hang Mike Pence. I don't know how much of that was shown, but I remember that vividly. And then, you know, more violence. And then it goes back to Trump making this video, which I alluded to earlier, uh, at the uh, pleading of his aides, in which he said, this was a fraudulent election, never should have been allowed to happen, but uh, we need peace, go home. And then he says, we love you, you're very special. And after the President of the United States says to these lawbreakers, to these thugs, to these criminals, we love you, you're very special, the video cuts back to more, you know, people being, you know, uh, the cops being attacked, uh, the violence out of control, Capitol policemen backing up as this huge mob climbs the stairs to the second floor of the Capitol, um, and back and forth and back and forth. And it just was extraordinarily effective. Also effective on the Democratic side was particularly the lead impeachment manager, Congressman Jamie Raskin, uh, who ended with a very emotional story about how he had brought his kids to work with him that day and they had witnessed this horrible carnage. And uh, he said to his daughter, you know, it's not, uh, you know, we'll bring you back another day. I'm so sorry this happened. She said she didn't want to go back. Uh, and he made the argument about what he called the January exception. He said, because, of course, the entire thing focuses now on, at least according to the procedural arguments being made by the Trump lawyers, who I'll get to in just a minute, um, that how do you impeach a private citizen? I mean, you, they impeached him when he was president. How do you convict a private citizen in the Senate trial? Why even bother? Why do that? And what Raskin said was, if you don't do that, then you have a January exception, meaning in the final weeks of, any, of a president's term, he can do whatever he wants, break the law, flout the law, incite a riot, and then, just, and then just wait for January 20th to come, and then he can't be touched. And what kind of accountability is that? So Raskin is making that case and trying to make it vivid. You know, we were all here in this very chamber when all the rioters and criminals uh, came through. And, and how do we hold Donald Trump accountable if he just gets off the hook by waiting until the clock runs out? until his term expired, 
on January 20th. Because, of course, there was two weeks before the day of the insurrection, January 6th, and the inauguration of Biden on January 20th. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. But then came the Trump lawyers. And the first lawyer, his name is Bruce Castor, and this is a guy who was a prosecutor in Pennsylvania who declined to prosecute Bill Cosby and lost an election, and then Cosby ultimately got prosecuted and is in jail. I've got to say, and this is not a knock on the substance of the argument, it's not a knock on the president's case, um, it was the worst performance I have ever seen by anybody at a national event, probably ever. It was, you know, to say that, oh, Bruce Castor was meandering and he was kind of incoherent and he didn't have a theme and he didn't know what he wanted to say and he wasn't really building an argument doesn't really capture how bad it was. It was monumentally awful. I mean, he starts out by talking about um, the Senate and then he went into this long, long disquisition. Remember, and he, he later claimed, or sources claimed, he was trying to cool off the chamber after the very emotional impact of the uh, house managers who spoke and the video. Yeah, he cooled it off all right. People, Republicans were ripping him. They were scratching their heads. He says, you know, when I was growing up, when little Bruce was eight or nine years old, uh, Eric Dirksen was a great senator. My parents bought a record of Eric Dirksen's speeches and we would listen to it. And senators are patriots and they're such important people. And I am so proud to say that I know my two senators from Pennsylvania and I consider them friends. And it's going on and on and on. It's like, what does this have to do with Donald Trump or impeachment? And then he's talking about, he, he does a brief detour to the Federalist Papers, where you arguably could get to the framers' intent. And then he's talking about Athens, and he's talking about Rome. And the impression I had, it was such a stark impression, was of a guy who had about 10 minutes of material and was told to speak for an hour. And so he's winging it, and he's stretching, and he's going off on tangents just to fill the time. I guess he actually spoke for about 45 minutes. It felt like about six hours. Um, and then the second lawyer came, uh, and his name is David Schoen, and he was much better. He was, I didn't think he had a very winning personality, but at least he constructed a coherent argument about why impeachment was unconstitutional and Trump was no longer in office, but I'll get to that in a minute. So what was, you had to wonder, I mean, there were several people who went on Twitter while Castor was speaking and saying, if Twitter could just lift the ban on Trump tweeting just for one tweet, I'd love to know what he's thinking. Well, we do now know because uh, his aides and allies have put that out to several news organizations. For example, uh, New York Times says Trump uh, was furious, for people, people familiar with his reaction said, on a scale of one to ten, with ten being the angriest, he was an eight, said one person. And while he thought uh, that the second lawyer, Sean, gave him more spirited performance, he ended the day frustrated and irate, according to these Trump advisors. And as the Times noted, Trump has been kicked off Twitter, so he couldn't vent there. Um, and he couldn't go online and, and you know, threaten to retaliate against Republicans who serve on this jury, uh, as the uh, 50 Republicans in the Senate do. Uh, that one of his own lawyers praised the prosecutor, surprised and infuriated Mr. Trump. People familiar with his reaction said, one of the first things that Bruce Castor said was, well, the House managers did a really good job. And, you know, well done. And now I'm going to take a different approach. Uh, not usually the way you open. Other Trump allies said privately that some members of the legal team seemed surprised by the raw clips from the riot 
the Democrats showed, even though they've been signaling this for days. I mean, all you do is pick up the bleeping newspaper, right? Uh, so then Trump allies distributed talking points to their surrogates uh, in the political world, saying the Democrats uh, did exactly as we all expected them to do. Uh, glorifying violence and intentionally misleading on the Constitution. The Democrats set a horrible precedent. This is the talking points. Uh, for the rest of the impeachment, we're making it clear they will selectively edit, which is a polite way of saying lying, everything from video video footage to remarks from legal scholars to the Constitution itself. Well, the, 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 the footage was edited. Was it edited in a misleading way? I think it's hard to make that case. It was certainly edited for the most dramatic impact. There's no question about that. Uh, Washington Post has a piece about uh, Trump's uh, exile at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, he is adrift, friends say, with no clear sense of what comes next for the first time in his political life. Uh, they add that Trump is calmer than they expected as he faces down another historic indictment. Uh, four former senior Trump administration officials independently described the former president as chill or chilling. But he is privately fuming over Republicans he believes have wronged him, from Liz Cheney, who voted for impeachment, to Kevin McCarthy, who said Trump bears responsibility for the attack on the Capitol before he backtracked, and they had a session down in Florida where maybe they made up. Uh, Lindsey Graham, on the record, he's decompressing. He's enjoying some of the time he hasn't had in the past, and he's thinking about impeachment. Well, of course. Um, but Trump's seeming quietude, said one confidant, is less a result of newfound discipline more consequence of the Trump of the Twitter ban, so that Trump doesn't have this instant public forum. Meanwhile, um, many of the re- Republicans in the Senate were appalled by uh, the lawyer's performance, particularly Bruce Castor. Um, Bill Cassidy, and he's the Louisiana Republican who decided to change his vote. He says, based on how poor a job the Trump lawyers did, he says Cassidy says. Uh, the House managers were focused. They were organized. They relied upon both precedent, the Constitution, and legal scholars. They made a compelling argument. President Trump's team was disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments, says Senator Cassidy. John Cornyn, member of the leadership, uh, the first lawyer just rambled on and on and didn't really address the constitutional argument. The second, Finally, the second lawyer got around to it. So, I mean, look, what happened here was President Trump had a legal team in South Carolina, five attorneys, and they all quit. And the reason they all quit or were pushed out uh, by the former president is they didn't want to make the argument that Trump wanted them to make, which was he actually won the election. They didn't see any reason to go there because it doesn't get you anything. What you do is you make the case that it's not constitutional to impeach a private citizen. Um, or maybe you make the case that Donald Trump, even with his fiery words, didn't incite the violence and shouldn't be held accountable. Um, and yet, they didn't like that. So they ended up with a couple of guys, uh, not exactly national figures. No, None of the people who represented Donald Trump in the first impeachment trial, whether it was White House uh, attorneys or private attorneys wanted to do this again. None of the major law firms, I guess, in New York or Washington wanted to represent the former president. So you ended up with who you had, and they didn't really have much time to prepare. And Castor, in particular, doesn't seem to know how to make an argument. Maybe he's better in front of a jury on a more specific case. But as I said, you know, not to beat up on the guy, but it was an embarrassment. It was a national embarrassment. And it set the tone. 
in the end, it doesn't change the outcome. But that's the reason that those attorneys were up there. A very different situation. And so finally, to deal with the substance of David Schoen's article, as I said, I thought he was much more focused and much better. He made the case that there was no need to convict Donald Trump on the single article of impeachment because there had just been an election. And as Schoen put it, the people have spoken. That was his quote. The people have spoken and, and we just inaugurated a new administration. So the problem with that, or the irony in that is, sure, ordinarily, that would be a very persuasive argument. The, it was done at the ballot box. You don't need impeachment of a former president when 7 million more voters turned out and Joe Biden got you know 306 electoral votes and Donald Trump is no longer president. But the people have spoken is not what Donald Trump says. It's not what he said on January 6th when he talked about fraud in the election, when he talked about essentially how the election had been stolen, how we have to take our country back. The sitting president of the United States was telling these people who would then march up to the Capitol, we have to take our country back. Despite the fact that his arguments failed, as you all know, in all of those lawsuits, including in front of a bunch of Republican judges and Trump-appointed judges, and failed with his own attorney general, Bill Barr, who says the Justice Department did not find any widespread fraud. So David Schoen is arguing what Donald Trump will not acknowledge to this day. He does not acknowledge that he lost the election fairly and squarely. And yet his lawyer thought it would be a good idea to make that case to 100 senators. And that uh, just shows you the paradox here. The lawyers, you know, they just want to get through this trial in a few days, get their client acquitted and, and go home. They don't want to argue that the election was stolen. They don't have to argue the election is stolen, but their client continues to believe, and we'll hear a lot more from him after this trial, I am sure, that the election was stolen, which means he believes he should still be president and not President Biden. Who, by the way, was asked, and he gave a, a, a talk yesterday. He took, you know, it was one shouted question before he walked away. Do you plan to watch the impeachment trial? And he said, no. And the reason is I have a job to do, and we can't waste any time on COVID-19, the vaccine, and all of that. He said, the Senate has its job to do. Uh, I'm sure they'll do it well. I'm going to focus on my job. And of course, that's the image that Biden wants to project. I'm not saying it's not true. But, you know, the idea that he's going to sit around watching, you know, eight hours or 10 hours of uh, oral arguments a day instead of helping us get out of this pandemic, it's exactly what people would want him to do. You know, he can't affect the outcome anyway. Uh, why would he try? So speaking of COVID-19, so as you all know, coronavirus deaths surged in November with Thanksgiving, in December with Christmas, and it got up to, you know, scary levels, well over 3,300 deaths a day of Americans, and that's just an average. Now, it's declined to 2,800 deaths a day. Now, I hasten to add, 2,800 Americans dying every day from this virus is still awful, tragic, chilling, scary. Uh, and does speak, I think, to the, the botch rollout program in part, although that would obviously take time no matter how successful it was. Um, but at least it's going in the right direction, and the number of cases is being reduced as well. Uh, so, for example, yesterday, the country reported 96,400 new cases, third day in a row of under 100,000 cases. Again, that may be impacted by people, uh, fewer, fewer people getting tested, but nevertheless, if cases are going down, and the death toll is going down, 
finally we are moving in the right direction. The peak was on January 8th. What a shock, you know, about a week uh, or two after the Christmas holidays. But will us continue? As the New York Times points out, we have these variants now, such as the one in Britain, which are harder to treat, which maybe the vaccines are not as effective, and those have showed up in the U.S. I want to circle back to one more thing having to do with Donald Trump and impeachment. It has to do with prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, have now launched a criminal investigation of that infamous phone call where the then president of the United States called Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's secretary of state, Georgia's Republican secretary of state, and for an hour pleaded, cajoled, kind of threatened, you know, we got to find enough votes. you got to do the right thing. Find me 11,000 votes to overturn the results in Georgia. So the newly elected Democratic prosecutor uh, sent a letter to various state officials saying you have to preserve all your documents and we're looking into this. That just doesn't mean it's going to lead to anything, but it has led not just to, a, you know, some kind of civil inquiry, but a criminal investigation. Uh, other fallout from the impeachment, the January 6th riot, and perhaps the advent of the Biden administration, uh, a lot of people are leaving the Republican Party. And I have some hard numbers here. Now, there's all, after every election, there's you know, a certain number of people change their registration. That by itself, uh, not so amazing. Uh, but these figures in the New York Times, in uh, the three weeks after the January 6th riot, so roughly between um, the beginning of January and the end of January, which is, uh, coincides with you know, the first week of the Biden administration, um, in California, more than 33,000 registered Republicans left the party. Pennsylvania, more than 12,000 voters left the party. In Arizona, more than 10,000 Republicans changed their registration. And that's just in about that three-week span. Uh, overall, uh, New York Times analysis says 140,000 Republicans have quit the party in 25 states. Uh, that they could get the data from. Another 19 states don't have registration by party, for example. That's a lot. Now, most of them didn't become Democrats. They just were nothing or they became independents or, or whatever. But clearly, this has been a very, very damaging few months and few weeks for the GOP. Um, now, could this change in six months, a year, by the midterm elections? Yeah, of course. More people could come back to the Republican Party or independents who left the GOP could still vote for their local Republican candidates. But it's not the trend you want if you're, for example, you know, uh, running the RNC. So I'm about to dive back into uh, day two, which is actually the formal opening arguments. Uh, this talk that the Democrats are going to have some new video. They're probably going to save something every day to try to make new headlines. Um, I'd be very curious. We talked about the Super Bowl ratings at the top, uh, particularly after day one. Are people going to tune into this daytime programming? I mean, all the cable news networks taking this live, uh, watching on the broadcast networks or watching online, however they do. Are they going to tune in at the same level that they watched the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump over the Ukraine business and the call, the perfect call with the president of Ukraine and trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden? Or is there impeachment fatigue? Is there Trump fatigue? Is there a sense that this is anticlimactic because we all know it's going to either come over the weekend or probably on Monday, next Monday, President's Day, that the Senate will vote, and regardless of whether it's 44 or 43 Republicans uh, voting uh, to acquit, that former President Donald Trump will be 
acquitted. That really kind of sucks the drama out of it. The Democrats succeeded yesterday, in my view, in restoring a lot of the drama because it was such a traumatic day for our country. And to see that awful video brought it all back. It certainly did for me. And looking at what other journalists have said, what a lot of average people are saying, looking at what people on Twitter are saying, I think a lot of the country had that. But it's hard to sustain that level. So we'll see. We'll keep you posted on all that. Stay safe. Hope you have a great day. Back here tomorrow with more Buzz From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.